We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're towards the end. We're nearing the crucifixion. And so we're in this little little mini-series entitled Characters Surrounding the Crucifixion, where we want to each week look at some of the individual characters to see what God and through the gospel writer, Mark wants to expose to us about how he's shaping certain disciples or certain enemies of, of Christ. And no doubt some of these enemies would become believers. But if we are about disciple making, then what does the scripture reveal to us about the people in the story, the people in the narratives? And today we're going to look at three Groups of people, one of them is an individual. So the first is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. The second, once again, we're going to look briefly at Jesus' disciples and what Mark wants us to know about them and their hearts. And then we're going to look at the religious leaders once again. And again, briefly, we're going to spend most of our time about the Son of Man. And you're going to see the Son of Man come up almost in every sermon leading up to the crucifixion. But today we want to ask a simple question. Okay, what did each of these individuals or groups of individuals fear losing the most. All three of these, the Son of Man, the disciples, and uh, the religious leaders feared losing something. What did they fear losing the most? And in light of what they feared, how did they respond? Okay, that's what we're going to see today. What did they fear losing the most? And how did each of them respond? So Mark 14, if you're not there, please take God's word and turn with me to Mark 14. And the first thing we're going to see starting in verse 32 is about the Son of Man. What did the Son of Man fear losing the most? And he feared alienation from his father. He feared losing perfect communion with God. And why this is important to us is oftentimes our greatest fear when we go through the everyday stresses of life, it's like the second or third or maybe a tertiary thought, right? We don't fear a hindered relationship with God. We're like, our relationship with God is hurting. Is that our greatest fear? To lose our relationship with God or to lose a, a, a clean relationship with God because there's sin in our lives and there's things competing with our relationship to Jesus as Lord. Instead, we fear losing money. We fear losing our health. We fear losing time and, and every other thing. And some of these concerns are real, legit concerns. But, but Jesus Christ feared losing more than anything, more than physical torture, more than pain. He feared losing temporarily perfect communion with God the Father and, and losing access to that constant rushing joy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, how did he respond? You're going to see in the text that he responds with perfect submission to the will of God the Father. So whereas man was created, Adam was created to obey God and was tested and failed, Jesus Christ also is tested and he does not need to go to the cross. He does not need to pay for wretched sinners like you and me, but instead he perfectly obeys the will of God. So this is the picture of the perfect man, the son of man, which Jesus refers to himself as the son of man throughout Mark. This is the perfect picture of a son in obedience to his father. So with that, let's look at verses 32 to 34. Mark writes this, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, the big three, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
Remain here and watch. So here's what you need to know about Jesus Christ. If you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, and if you've been reading any of the other Gospels, you'll realize that the entire time Jesus is unshakable. He's immovable, right, in terms of his emotional stability. I mean, he has people cursing him, criticizing him, the religious leaders plotting to kill him. He's unmoved. He finds out that Judas wants to betray him, and he simply identifies Judas, like the one dipping the bread in the cup with me right now. That's the guy. Jesus, aren't you going to do something? Aren't you angry? Aren't you going to emotionally just blow up on him? It needs to happen as it is written in Scripture, just this calm submission. The storm, there's this crazy storm, right? And Jesus is just like, disciples, what are you stressing out about? Don't you know that I've got everything under control? And he calms the raging seas and the storm. I I mean, there's demonic people and Jesus is just calm. But for the very first time in Jesus' life, as recorded in Scripture, he is shaken to the core. And he's not just shaken a little bit. When you look at the language of the text, notice that he's not just distressed. Look at verse 33. Once again, it says he's greatly distressed. And and there's a reason why Mark, as the biblical author inspired by the Holy Spirit, adds this greatly distressed and he's troubled. Jesus, when are you troubled? When were you ever troubled? You're the one who would call us not to be anxious. You're the one in the Sermon on the Mount that told us, you know, why are you worried about about what you're going to need in terms of provision? Doesn't the Lord provide for the birds of the air? You know, and and the flowers of of, of the fields? Why are you worried? But why is Jesus distressed? Now, the Greek word for troubled conveys this sense of anguish, and being overcome by horror. He was horrified. The Son of Man, who is unshakable and fearless, is fearful. He's horrified. And for the first first time in his life, he, he suffers agony, and he's not even on the cross yet. God is, the Son of God is completely omniscient. He knows all things, and he knows that he's going to be crucified. He's well aware of what crucifixion is, yet what troubles him is not the imagination of physical torture or being pierced. I mean, that just, that terrifies me. I'm scared of a paper cut, you know? So, so I mean, that's why my, my Bible is like the, the, the soft paper, right? I don't handle construction paper. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to have a paper cut. I can't imagine having a, a huge nail, a stake being pierced through my wrist and just shows you, how afraid I am, right, of of that type of physical torture. And I think most of you would be terrified at the idea of being being pierced by, by some sharp object. But that's not what terrifies Jesus. Luke chapter 22 gives us more insight. Luke chapter 22, verses 43 to 44, tells us that, that Jesus is so horrified at this idea of of something that he's never experienced before. I'll tell you in a minute that an angel had to come and strengthen him because he would have died at the terror. I mean, this is complete shock. Like like some people will die at, at the impact of an accident because of pure just shock and horror. And Jesus would have, we like to believe that physically he would have, he wouldn't have made it if an angel did not come 
to strengthen him. That's what Luke 22 tells us because he's, he actually says that when the Son of Man is overcome by horror to the point of death, verse 34 of, of our passage today in Mark 14, right? So sorrowful even to death. And then Luke chapter 22 also tells us that he began to sweat blood. And some of us, like me, who failed chemistry <laughs> in high school, and, and is academically unlearned, you know, someone like me who's dumb, I'm like, you can't sweat blood. That's just poetic language. That's not true. You look up on Wikipedia, which is not a credible source all the time, but, but you can look it up, and, and this actually happens when you suffer. When someone suffers from extreme levels of stress, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture, and blood begins to go into your sweat glands. I've never sweat blood. Never, because I've never, ever suffered this emotional weight of pain that Jesus Christ, our Savior, suffered, and he's not even at the cross yet. And so what troubled him so much? It's very simple. You and I miss our devotional time. We miss prayer time. It doesn't bother us because we were born separated from God. And that's why everything else in this world troubles us. But you're talking about Jesus Christ who had constant devotional time with God, constant communion with God. The times that he prayed was only an expression of what he constantly experienced, which is the Father was always there affirming him. The Father was always pleased with him. He never for a moment experienced displeasure from his Father. You know how little children, you know, they, they cry and they're sad and, and, and when they're disobedient and, and as a parent when you discipline them and, and then they're, they're ashamed and they want to hug because it hurts them that they've displeased their parents. And you know even as adults, there's still shame and pain when we think about the times when, we, when our parents weren't proud of us. And it means so much to us even as grown men if some of our fathers would just say, hey, son, I'm proud of you. Right? I mean, you just think of that, but Jesus never, never, never experienced his father or his parents ashamed of him or, or ever experienced that thought that he let, it, let his father down because he never sinned. And every time he was barely on the edge of discouragement, you could imagine that the rushing joy of the perfect communion of the Holy Spirit just flows into him. And that's the power that he operated upon. The power and presence and perfect communion of the Holy Spirit. And just the mere thought of separation, of a hindered relationship with God, is something that he never had tasted. And just the foretaste of this, as it began to unravel, the plan of God began to take place of salvation for us that he began to taste the shame of betrayal. He began to feel the pain of his father saying, I can't look upon you, son. I love you, but because I love you, I hate sin. And God the Father hates sin, and he cannot bear sin. He cannot look upon his son. What about Jesus, who knew no sin? Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? And, and even as a kid, someone tattles on you and said, look, Hanley farted. And I'm just like, no, I didn't. And I'm ashamed. And, and that's silly, right? 
Now think of, think of someone accusing you of, of rape, murder, insurrection. It was sick, gross sins that I'm, I'm not going to talk about here. And Jesus bore those sins. But he's sinless. He's never known sin. He's never sinned. And, and, and he looks at his father and says, but, but Abba, I didn't do it. I'm not this gross sinner. But, but his father is like, I'm so ashamed of you that I have to, to, to pour my hatred towards you because the opposite side of love is hatred for sin. And so in, in God's holy love, he pours out judgment and wrath upon his son and it's just this holy hatred of sin and, and just cannot even look upon his son. And Jesus is like, but I, I'm innocent. And he's bearing all of that for sinners. And so, and so the weight of God's judgment, just the thought of it is coming upon him. That, that, that the power of the Spirit is beginning to, to, that joy is beginning to leave him where he's like, for the very first time, I don't have the Holy Spirit with me. I'm completely going to be alone, completely abandoned. And, and, and his disciples abandoning him, that, that's just small beans. Because to be abandoned by God, even for a moment, is something that you and I have not tasted. Even the unbeliever who's still alive is still experiencing the common grace of God. And so until people actually enter into eternal judgment in hell, they have not ever tasted what it's like to be completely abandoned from the presence of God. And Jesus has never, ever experienced this. So now go back to Mark 14 if, if you're not there and look at verse 35. This is going a little farther. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And you can read into that, God, I'm innocent. Father, have I not always obeyed you? Please remove this cup from me. But how does he respond to this fear? Yet not I will, not what I will, but what you will. Not what my heart longs for. And, and when we long for things, sometimes it's out of the flesh. He's longing for this out of his purity and holiness. And the Father is silent. The Father is silent. The Father does not come to his rescue. Now, the Son of God is authoritative. He could at this point, theologically, we, we know from the rest of scriptures, the scriptures, he could have aborted the mission. He could have called down all the angels of heaven and said, forget it. I don't want to do it. I'm equal to my father. My father would, would understand. But instead, he submits to the will of his father. The fact that he says Abba is revolutionary in terms of Jewish religious literature. A man referring to God a holy being with such intimate language. You know, you and I can call God Abba Father because we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. But when you look at Jewish literature, both in scripture and in outside of scripture, Jewish religious literature, you don't see people calling God Abba because it's too human. It's, it's disrespectful almost. It's irreverence to refer to the holy creator of all things of the entire universe as Abba. But he cries out, Abba Father, Abba Abba, like, like almost like an intimate cry instead of God. He says, Abba, are you, are you leaving me? You know, as kids, 
All of us have been there, and if you haven't, I mean, God bless you, where your parents are late, especially in California, there's too much traffic, where your parents are, are, are late to pick you up. And back then, I didn't have a cell phone. I used quarters on a payphone, or you call collect to, for your parents to pick you up from school or from baseball. I remember uh, my parents are late, and, and I start crying. You know, and, and sometimes I, I see I, I'm, I'm being picked up on the second one, second to last, and I see the last kid, and he starts crying, and he's the biggest kid on the team. You know, sixth grade and six five. You know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and he's crying. So, oh, my parents aren't going to pick me up. They're going to forget about me. They're going to abandon me. Just the thought of abandonment for a child. It just breaks you as a child. You know, obviously you grow up and you, and you learn and you realize you don't have to cry anymore. You can walk home. Um, <laughs> you know, you can call Uber, right? <laughs> Nowadays, you know, like, I mean, serious. <laughs> You know, every kid has some type of cell phone, and I don't re- I'm not recommending that, but, but I see it. I'm like, are you serious? I didn't have that. <laughs> and, and, and at the end of the day, um, multiply that thought of abandonment of a child crying, Abba, are you going to come pick me up? Are you going to abandon me by eternity? And that's the wrath. That's what Jesus was imagining, and he felt when Jesus is asking for the cup to be move, removed from him, this is a cup of wrath. We see this in Isaiah 51, 17 to 23, and Jeremiah 49, 12, and there's other places, but Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 49, where the Old Testament prophets used this imagery of a cup, of drinking a cup of God's wrath and anger. And this is the bitter cup. He's not talking about bitter melon soup. He's talking about God's divine wrath being so bitter, and it's going to be bitter when all he has tasted his entire being, his entire life, because he's infinite and he's eternal, is the perfect sweet fellowship of the Trinity. And Jesus is abandoned. He drank a cup of wrath a hundred percent more hellish and horrifying than the greatest inferno in all of Dante's imagination. To be abandoned by God is worse than the lake of fire, which we believe is going to be hell, as we see in the book of Revelation. It's a billion times worse. It is a torment of the soul, not just a burning of the body. One commentator put it this way, William Lane. He says, Jesus came to the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, hoping that his Father would be there because that's all he's used to. Father, I'm coming to you again for prayer. But found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. And so you look at the end of verse 36, and it highlights the complete perfect submission of the Son. This is discipleship. This is obedience. Yet not not what I will, not what I want in life, not what I love in life. Because I'm going to lose for a moment what I love the most, which is this perfect, unhindered relationship with God. Jesus is saying, but what you will. I'm willing to go through hell to obey you to fulfill the plan of salvation for the glory of God. 
That is what drove Jesus, the glory of his Father. And no doubt, no doubt there was a love for us. As Jesus bore the hot anger and wrath of God, it was the greatest communication of love. To bear the wrath of God is to then communicate the love of God in the greatest eternal form. He bore an eternal wrath and an eternal separation because he's receiving the punishment of an eternal being. So that you and I who believe in him can experience a relationship, a reunion, a communion with the holy, perfect, eternal being. And he's completely obedient. This is different from any other character in the Bible. Complete obedience because he feared losing perfect fellowship with God. And again, I say applicationally, I have to confess. And, and, you, and you will all confess too that there are times where we just don't long for our time with God in the same way. We just don't love God as much as Jesus loves God. And of course, right? But this challenges us that because we couldn't love the Father enough to save ourselves. Jesus had to demonstrate this for us and he had to actually go through hell figuratively, but in a real abandonment temporarily so that you and I could be reunited with God just so that we can even have the concept of a relationship. That's point number one. The Son of Man feared the most, losing fellowship with God. But how did he respond? With perfect submission and obedience to God. Point number two is we see the disciples. In the very same passage, verses 37 to 42, and then we see a disciple, we assume, in verses 51 to 52. And what, what they fear losing is their own lives. Now, in Gethsemane, we don't see that verbalized. But when you consider all of Mark 14, including Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial and Jesus saying to his disciples, all of you will be scattered. We see that, that, that throughout the rest of Mark and all of the Gospels that the disciples feared persecution. And it's okay to be honest with God and say, yes, we fear persecution. But, but what is the greater fear? The persecution is just an external thing, right? Internally in the heart, we fear our own livelihood, losing our own livelihood. And when you take that idea of livelihood and you, and you put that with our human desire and our imperfect human nature and our sin and our flesh, livelihood becomes everything that we love in this world. Our comforts, our money, our sins that may, we want to hold on to. And there's so many of us in here that, that I, I can't give an application that's going to apply equally to everyone, but you have to kind of think about what the Lord is convicting you of and what is your livelihood? What do we hold on to that we say, God, if this is taken away from me, I can't live. I can't live. I can't have joy. And for the disciples, they at this point don't understand yet. They don't have the example of Jesus Christ going to the cross and resurrecting yet. That's why they don't grasp the reality of, of what Jesus is calling them to. They're saying, Jesus, I will die with you. Peter says, Jesus, I will die with you. James and John say, Jesus, we want to drink your cup. And he says, no, trust me, I have another cup for you to drink. You don't drink my cup. You cannot drink this cup. Meaning, Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson. 
He's teaching them that they can't even stay awake to pray in the moment of testing. And basically, they are at this point not yet ready to take up their cross and to share, quote-unquote, in the sufferings of Christ. But they will. Because we know history records that, that, that the disciples go down and suffer, and all of them were martyred. John, history tells us that he was persecuted and suffered even physical torture, but, but we don't have the record that he was martyred. He's the only one. But he suffered tremendous pain. He was exiled onto an island. And he was tortured physically too. We know that. But all of the disciples suffered martyrdom. Eventually, they would actually share in the cup of suffering with Christ. But at this point, they are not ready to. They can't even fathom suffering because they're holding on to so much more of what they want in their lives. And so they were spiritually unprepared to share in Jesus' suffering. And that's what Mark wants us to see, that they claim to say, Jesus, we're ready to follow you. And Jesus says, not so fast. You can't even pray. You can't even stay awake. I know you're tired. I know we had a big meal. I understand that. I know it's late. I know you want to sleep. But I'm simply asking you to pray, and you can't even pray. How, how Peter, are you going to take up your cross and suffer with me? How, how, James and John, are you going to sit on my right hand and my left hand? You can't even suffer with me. You, you don't know what you're asking for. And, and, and no wonder, when you look at verse 53 and 54, again, who is there? Right? I mean, I'm sorry. When you look at verses 37 to 42, who is there? Who's there? Go back to verse 33, and it says, so the disciples, the 11 of them, Judas is gone now, the 11 of them are, are there with Jesus, but he takes specifically Peter, James, and John. Notice that. He takes Peter, the one who needs to learn humility, the one who said, I will die for you. And Peter's falling asleep. He takes James and John. Why? They're the ones that say, Jesus, we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. We want to drink your cup. And Jesus is saying, you can't drink my cup. I want to first teach you a lesson about prayer. I want to teach you a lesson about spiritual focus and the spiritual alertness that's necessary to follow him, the spiritual warfare that they have no idea of the battle that they're asking for. They have no idea what, what, they, what they're asking for when they want to follow Jesus. They can't. Right, so you see that. Now look at verse 38. Well, I mean verse 37 now. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? John MacArthur says in a sermon, and I don't know if it's a joke, but, but it was very insightful for me, when John MacArthur says every single time the Lord refers to Peter with his old name, it's because Peter's acting like his old self. Simon, Simon, you have potential to be Peter, the great apostle, the great disciple, but right now you're acting like your old self. You're depending on your own power and your pride and your flesh. Simon, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch even one hour? Verse 38, watch and pray now that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Notice the love of Jesus. He, he, he understands his disciples. He says, look, I'm not questioning your intention. I'm not questioning your heart that you want to follow me, but I want to tell you that the flesh is weak and the flesh impacts your heart, that you love yourself, you love your sleep, you love yourself more than you love me. 
Notice that our Lord is not asking for support from his disciples. He's not saying, I really need you to watch. I need you to pray for me. Notice that. He's telling them to pray for who? For themselves. Now read it again. Watch and pray, not for me. Right? Verse 38, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because temptation wraps itself around our flesh. Beloved, temptation is so real. Temptation is a slippery slope. Temptation creeps into our minds and our hearts and tells us it's not that bad. It's just one step. And then, oh, it's just two steps. It's just three steps. And before you know it, you're cursing Jesus and saying, I don't know you. I don't know that guy. That's Peter, right? We see that. That Peter's heart is right. So you can have good, Jesus-loving Christians with really good intention. And when they don't check their heart, temptation begins to build up and build up and build up. And the next thing you hear is they fall into into sin and temptation. And, And then we go back and we're like, what happened? What happened is that they didn't battle the first stage of temptation. They put themselves in a position of prayerlessness and they put themselves in a position where Satan was able to sift them like wheat. But here, the crazy thing is, these disciples, they're going to be tempted, but they're still under the Lord's protection and still in his presence. Amazing. Jesus never leaves his disciples. He leaves them temporarily on the cross because he's actually, at that point, dying for them. And then when he finally leaves them, he gives them the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. You you see that even when they're tempted, the reason why they don't completely fall away is because Jesus is still with them. And and notice, we see this. Look at verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And it says again, he came and found them. So Jesus is still near them. He came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And we don't doubt that they were fighting and trying to stay awake, but that's the flesh, that we have limitations, that we need the Spirit. And it says, and they did not know what to answer him. In verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come, meaning the time of betrayal has come. The time for Jesus to be handed over to be crucified has come. And notice how Jesus once again refers to himself, the Son of Man. He is the perfect man, the perfect son. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The son of man will be betrayed into the hands of men. And he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the disciples feared losing their lives. We see that from the rest of Mark 14. But we see here in this specific Gethsemane garden that they could not stay awake. They could not resist the temptation to fall asleep because the flesh is weak. And the lesson for us is, beloved, we are weak. We cannot ever be proud. I will confess to you that each and every moment I struggle with pride because pride is part of who we are. Pride creeps up. And I can even give that to you as a blanket statement. But recently, I've been reading, reading more about, um, you know, things that are happening to the church and the media and, and, and godly men 
uh, at one time than falling, having a moral failure of abuse of power or, or sexual immorality. And, and I don't think for a moment that I'm immune. And so I read more and more and I, I look into the deception of the hearts and, and I look at like, how could this be that we who have good intentions and who love God and know the word of God can fall into sin? How, how do you put yourself in that position and that's what we have to realize. It doesn't matter how much we know about the Bible. It doesn't matter how good our intentions are. If we are not vigilant, we have to first come. And repentance begins with surrender to saying, there's nothing I could do to save myself, not even from this moment of sin. Now, if there's anything good that we do, it's because of the Spirit and the grace of God. If there's anything good that we do, even the, the simplest thing like saying hi to someone for the sake of being kind, it's because the, the grace of God is in our lives. And even the unbeliever who's being kind, the common grace of God is, is, is available and operating. God is completely sovereign in this universe. He is operating spiritually, sustaining, giving people oxygen. Every blessing comes from him. Every trial is ordained and sent by him, especially for believers, for the sake of building them up. Especially, look at this, this trial, this sin, this falling asleep, we wouldn't say it's a sin to fall asleep, but this falling into temptation is but a, a, a lesson to shape and strengthen the disciples. That they need to lean not on their own understanding, but on the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And so that's the lesson for us, is that we fall into sin. And sin and temptation is a slippery slope when we think that we are okay. The moment we think, and I'm not talking about going around with a lack of any confidence or low self-esteem, but I'm talking about the, the, the moment that we think that we've made it and that we don't need God, that's the difference with Jesus, is that the moment he realizes that, that he has to do something apart from his father, he panics. It's horrifying. But beloved, it's not horrifying for us. Uh, but, but instead, we, we think, I think that I can write a sermon without praying. I think that I can counsel people without begging and crying for his power. I think that I can raise my daughter or love my wife without begging for his mercy and power. But Jesus, the moment he even thinks of the thought of doing anything apart from his Father and the power of the Spirit, he wants, he's horrified to the point of death. That's the difference with the disciples and the Son. The Son understands what it means to be the Son. The Son is dependent on the Father. The Son is dependent on the protection of the Father, the affirmation of the Father, the love of the Father. The Son understands what it means to depend on the Spirit. He is the Son. He is the perfect Son. So what does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus Christ? What does it mean for us to be sons and daughters of the King? And part of being a disciple is learning this surrender. This is a lesson of humility. It becomes crystal clear for us when we look at the disciples. And it is part of God's sovereign purpose that it's as simple as staying awake. Because you and I wouldn't see that as disobedient, but when the Lord commands them to stay awake and they disobey the command. It is disobedience, but if you can't even stay awake, how can you fight the devil, right, from sin? And so we need to look at this as a lesson of the lesser to amplify the potential of the greater sin to destroy men and women of God. 
Now read this again, verse 38. Watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we know this, that we must beg the Lord each day, the Lord's prayer, not just give us this day our daily bread, but lead us not into temptation. Why is the daily prayer? Because temptation lurks. As soon as our alarm clocks go off, temptation is there waiting for us. As, as long as when we pick up our alarm clocks, temptation is there on our phones. Temptation is waiting. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. James chapter 4 says, resist the devil because he's there. Peter says, Peter knows more than anyone. The devil is like a, roar, a prowling you know, a, a prowling beast, right? Looking for someone to devour. Now you go to verse 51 and 52, and it's another lesson for us. And it says, verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. Now why would they seize him? The only reason why they would seize him is because they identified him as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, he's nameless, so we don't know who he is. Some people, um, you know, will speculate that this is Mark. This is a very young Mark who lived in Jerusalem. Acts tells us that Mark resided in Jerusalem, and he was following Jesus, and he got afraid, and so he ran. And they grabbed his clothes, and he says, take my robe, take my, my linen cloth, I'm running. Now, there's not enough evidence historically to build a case that this is Mark. We don't know. It could be, but we don't know who it is. But what we do need to know is the only reason they would seize him is because this is someone who is trying to follow Jesus. Now, if you completely don't love Jesus at all, you wouldn't get this close to the action. Right? How many of us even want to go on the 405 when Carmageddon's coming? We don't want to put ourselves into a difficult situation. When you hear that the riots are happening, you're not going to go and try to jump in there and say, hey, I want to just see because it's dangerous. In the same way, when you see that they're going to take Jesus to crucify him, you're not going to, I wonder if I'm going to go there. and You're going to run. So, so you're going to want to follow Christ because you actually have good intentions and you love him. But when the testing comes... You want to preserve your life. That's human nature. we got to understand that. That we were born to want to self-preserve ourselves. And we built up so many layers that we want to preserve our possessions. And we want to preserve all the possessions and all the things that we have that make ourselves feel good. And so the young man, it says in verse 52, he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Nakedness in the Bible has always been a symbol of shame. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they didn't know they were naked before. Who told you you were naked? And all of a sudden, they realized they're naked and they're ashamed because sin entered their minds. Now, Jesus is going to be stripped naked, beaten, and hung naked, bearing the shame of man and the sin of man on the cross. And so this is shameful. He runs away naked rather than going down for Christ and being arrested. Right? And so, so both of these passages kind of give us the idea that the disciples were spiritually not ready. And once again, the question becomes, do we love God enough like Jesus? Do we love him so much that we can't imagine a moment without his presence, that we're constantly saying, without your presence, I'm falling into temptation. Without your presence, I can't do anything without you. 
Right? Remain in me, John 15, because apart from me, you can do nothing. And how much does that verse mean to us? And beloved, I'm no better than you. I struggle each and every day trying to do God's work without prayerful dependency. But the only reason God sustains me is that I know some of you are praying for me, and I thank you. Because people, you, some of you will actually tell me, hey, I'm praying for you. And if it wasn't for your prayers, I wouldn't be qualified to be in this pulpit. I know that. I know the only reason why I, I could even be your pastor. I, I can't say that, that I deserve anything. is because some of you actually get on your knees and pray for us. That the Spirit of God would continue to move us. And, and that's how we persevere. Right? Because Jesus said it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in me. But how can we remain when the flesh is so strong? Now you look at the religious leaders in verses 63 to 65. This is the third one. I'm going to cut this point short a little bit because of time. But you look at that they feared losing their power and influence. And we've seen this developed throughout Mark, right? So, so their livelihood is built around a whole system where now it's corruption because they have a religious temple system, a, a religious system that, that has political incentives with Rome, this entire system that gives them power and influence in society where they're at the top of the ladder. And when Jesus wants to threaten this and when he wants to come say to them that he is actually the son of man, he is the judge of this world, they are so offended to the core that they're willing to lie and bear false witness against him. The supposed religious leaders are willing to bear false witness in order to murder an innocent man. And they are completely evil because once again, they want to protect what they fear losing the most, which is their power and influence, which allows them to be themselves. So you go back to verses 53 to 56, and it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. So the, the high priest is Caiaphas during this time, the chief priests and the elders, these are the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, a bodily resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. And so the Sadducees, the chief priests, are political religious leaders. They're not that spiritual to begin with, but, but they're tied in with Rome. And so they have political incentive. Then you have the elders. Who are the elders? These are the wealthiest Jewish landowners. And this made up this liberal left, uh, left side, this is your left side, uh, left wing of, of, of the Jewish Supreme Court called the, the, the Great Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. On the right wing, you have the Pharisees. These are the conservative people who would, would look at the law of Moses and all the interpretations and try to stick to it. And they're more legalistic, but they had their own pride. They had this self-righteous machine that they built up in. And so they're represented on the Sanhedrin, this Great Supreme Court, by the scribes who interpreted and would write the law. And in verse 54, so they all came together. So, so the Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other, but they came together, right? The liberals and the conservatives of, of Judaism came together to kill Jesus. What would unite two opposing parties? What would unite the Republicans and Democrats, right? I mean, that's the question. What, what would unite them? And for, for these, for these Jewish leaders, it was a hatred for Jesus who, who wanted lordship over them. Now, verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance, we explained this verse last week, riding into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And we're going to focus on the religious leaders, but look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. They tried. <clears throat> they tried to find reason, just cause to convict Jesus. 
They had none. Verse 56, for many bore false witness against him. And this is funny, but their testimony did not agree. So how far are you willing to go to get rid of Jesus Christ? How far are you willing to go to get rid of the person who wants lordship over you because you recognize that that he is the Son of Man, or at least you recognize in your mind that there's this authority that you don't want. What are you willing to do? And And they're willing to lie. And applicationally, this would be like us, knowing what God wants of us, but we come up with rationale. Maybe it's not so bad, right? Maybe, no, 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 God wants me to have this. But you think about that. That's what they're willing to do. Come up with lies to deny the truth. Now, verse 55 tells us that that they were seeking false testimony. And you go down to verse 57. Why were they so angry? Verse 57 says, Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that was made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Obviously, Jesus is talking figuratively about his body, saying that he's going to die, and being the temple of God, dying for sins of man, and he's going to rise again. But they were saying, no, no, he's going to destroy the temple. He's physically going to harm the temple, which was illegal uh, in the Roman Empire to desecrate a holy place of worship. Now, verses 60 to 62 says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him again, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see. And this is what gets them, pushes them over the edge. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of a man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. You know what he's saying? The religious leaders know very clear what son of man means. When Jesus says son of man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven, he's basically saying, I am the judge of this world. I will judge you for your sin. He's quoting and referring to Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7 where it describes the Son of Man as the judge of this world, coming to judge the world. And that bothers them. You know, for so many people, they hate the idea of Jesus Christ because they hate the idea of someone that's going to judge us for our actions and our decisions in life. And that's why people are so repulsed by Christianity. Because people want to live, we want to live how we want to live. And when there's another judge that's going to judge us based on what we want, we don't want to have anything to do with it. We, we make every rationale even willing to defy logic and to come up with false reasoning to destroy the concept of God. This lofty arguments destroy the concept of God in our lives. And Paul spends a lifetime tearing this down theologically, right? attacking this. And so in verse 63, the high priest, you know, he's, I guess he's Hulk Hogan, right? He, he tears his garment. He's actually not allowed to tear his official garments. The Jewish law prohibited the high priest from tearing his garment. But this is not his official garment. This is his his nightgown or his night robe because this is happening in the middle of the night. And Jewish literature allows for the high priest to tear his garment only when the, the claim is blasphemy, when the offense is blasphemy. It says, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this, his blasphemy. He tears his garment and disgusts. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death based on false lies. 
that some began to spit on him to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And so what you see is that they're willing to go to the ends of lie, lies to kill him. How many people are willing to build their, li- their lives on a mountain of philosophical or nonsensical lies, including the theory of evolution, but let's not get into that, just to destroy the concept of a judge that wants to make a call on our motives and our hearts and our decisions and our afterlife. And so this completely makes sense in our world that everyone hates Jesus, everyone wants to kill God because everyone loves themselves. That's why the question began, what is the, the greatest thing all these people feared? And there's only one person here who's obedient. There's only one person here who loves God the Father more than he loves himself, even though he is God, and that's Jesus Christ. Everybody else loves themselves more. And until we recognize how much we love ourselves, we will not understand what it means to love God, even for a moment. We can think we love God, but we will find ourselves falling into temptation. And so a lot of times when we say we want to follow Jesus, we have to be careful not to be like James and John and say, I want the cup. Give us the cup. I'm ready to follow you. Give us the cup. And Jesus, what did he do in Mark 14, 22 to 25? James and John were there. He said, you don't want my cup. You can't take my cup. Here's another cup. You're going to need this cup. It's the cup of the new covenant. Jesus, he took a cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and they all drank. And, the, and that cup is the cup of forgiveness of sin poured out for many. So the big idea today, when you look at all of Mark 14, because we're wrapping up Mark 14 today, is in the Lord's Supper, Christ, and then in Gethsemane, when you combine the imagery of the cup, Christ drank the bitter cup of wrath, so that we could drink the sweet cup of communion with God. What the cup of wrath that troubled God, the Son of God, that brought him to agony, was the thought and the experience of a temporary separation from God. But for us, it would be an eternal separation of God bearing his wrath. An eternal separation from the complete love and presence of God that Christ drank that cup. He said, give me that cup, disciples. You cannot drink this cup. You think you can serve me by drinking the cup, but I don't want this cup for you. In fact, I came to drink the bitter cup of my Father's holy wrath because that's the last thing that you want. So that you in exchange, if you just trust me, Jesus said, can drink the sweet cup of eternal communion with God. And so in Mark 14, 25, Jesus referred to drinking the fruit of the vine, which is the fruit of the forgiveness, of forgiveness applied to all who believe. It's the fruit of forgiveness that we will taste in heaven because the Son of Man put himself into the wine press of God's wrath so that we can drink the sweet wine of forgiveness. Oh, how sweet that little cup of grape juice is, right? It's corny. We drink the cup month after month, but how sweet is it? And when you consider that we cannot even love God 
for a moment apart from the grace of God, then that Welch's or Costco, I think is what we drink now, Kirkland, it's so sweet. And obviously you're laughing, right? But, but we drink that cup of, of grape juice. It's just juice. You know, it's, it's like we want wrath. And it's just juice. It's like Jesus said, you drink juice. That's the worst you're going to drink. And it's sweet. You drink juice. He drinks wrath. He drinks hell. We drink juice. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. It's sweet, that juice. The mysteries of the cross, I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary, you, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy now seated at your table drinking juice. Jesus, thank you. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Take him at his word. Take him at his word. If you love him, it begins by recognizing how helpless we are. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Oh, Spirit of God, help us. Oh, Lord, we all sit here and our hearts love you, but our flesh is weak. Father, cover us with your blood, then send us with your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to live for you, knowing that even your disciples who spend three years with you fell short. Help us to be truly humble in disposition, break and destroy our pride. Show us what we love in this world. Show us, Lord, how much we love ourselves. Me, Hanley, I love myself, Lord. It's a sin. And teach us what it means to love you so that we can one day see the cost of what you paid for when we experience your perfect love in heaven. Bring us home, O Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.